it's an incredible source of spiritual peacefulness. Mm. If you're just all stressed out with garbage that's going on in your life or in the intermixing with other people or whatever, mm. you can always just get away to under a dark sky and it kind of, it really settles you down. Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever gotten lost, even for a moment, in something inconceivably vast. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking about dark skies with not one, but two wonderful guests, Caleb Brown and Dan Derisco, whose voice you just heard. In this episode, we'll discuss why dark night skies are important, bats, light pollution, nighttime crime, my backyard, what cities and individuals can do to make the night darker, migrating birds, baby sea turtles, a tiny bit of astronomy, places you can go in California to see truly dark skies, and how we can all become connected with something infinitely larger than ourselves. Before we get started, don't forget to follow this podcast wherever you listen so you can stay up to date on new episodes, including topics like urban ecology, amphibians, the natural history of the Central Valley, and more that are all coming up in the rest of season two. And you might have picked up on this if you've been listening for a while, but my goal with Golden State Naturalist is to help people connect more deeply with the natural world, to cultivate an awareness and appreciation of the wonders all around us, and to help each of us internalize how thoroughly we as human beings belong here on this planet, caring for and participating in the ecosystems we live in as they care for us. If that message resonates with you and you'd like to help the show continue to get made and reach more people, you can become a patron for as little as $4 a month. Each person's support makes a big difference to an independent podcaster, and you get access to lots of video and audio extras, as well as the ability to get your questions asked to upcoming guests of the show. You can find me on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's, and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. If you want to see the various interview locations featured on the show and what my face looks like, you can find me at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok. My website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com, where I just recently published my very first blog entry, which is a poem I wrote for my three-year-old daughter. But now let's get to the episode. Kayla Brown, the first guest you'll hear from, is the Policy Associate and Desert Lands Campaign Manager for Friends of the Inyo, the outstanding environmental conservation organization you also heard from back in the Conglomerate Mesa episode in season one of this podcast. I'll give you a full update on the important work they're doing and how you can get involved at the end of this episode. Dan Derisco's bio from nightskymetrics.com says he's an environmental scientist and geographer who pioneered night sky protection for the U.S. National Park Service, assisting in the development of a sky brightness measuring and monitoring system based on accurately calibrated digital images. His specialties include sky brightness measurement with CCD cameras, GIS analysis of the effects of escaped light in the natural environment, and examining the impact of various outdoor lighting practices upon visual sky quality in protected areas. A fun fact here is that when I talked to Dan, I didn't actually know what he looked like, even though he was standing two feet away from me. It was that dark out, and I never saw him during the daylight. I actually Googled him later so I could see his face. So without further ado, let's hear from Kayla Brown and Dan Derisco on Golden State Naturalist. 
I met up with Kayla in the desert, specifically a place called Lee Flat, right along the western edge of Death Valley National Park. It was still daytime when we sat down in camping chairs in an open expanse of shinhai sagebrush dotted with much taller Joshua trees, as far as the eye could see. You can hear more about the ecology of this area in the Conglomerate Mesa episode I mentioned earlier. But the reason we brought our camping gear with us to Lee Flat that day was so that we could stay up late and look at the stars far from the nearest cities. So this area, it's far enough away from LA and Las Vegas Mm. that you can only see minuscule amounts of light pollution Mm -hmm. from there. And then the towns to the west are really small. So you have Lone Pine, Keeler, and neither one of them, they're not going to produce much light. Yeah, they're just too small. Yep. And so can you actually tell me a little bit about what is light pollution? So light pollution is when you have either lights that are shining up at the sky instead of down at the ground, Mm -hmm. um, or your lights are just too bright. Really, you don't need very bright lights in order to see at night. Mm -hmm. and your eyes really shouldn't look at them when it's that bright. So when you have a bunch of lights together that are not close to the ground, they're not dim enough, you're going to produce this halo of light. And this is a really stupid question, (laughs) because you're going to tell that I'm not a science person right now. Why doesn't the light just go away? Why doesn't it like go into space? stupid question. I might have to edit out that I even asked you. I am also not a scientist, but my my guess is that, and we can actually ask Don Trisco oh, yeah. because he studied dark skies here mm-hmm. in Death Valley. My guess, and again, we'll ask Dan to see if we're right, is that the atmospheric disruption. Okay, right? that makes so sense. So it hits the atmosphere and mm-hmm. then like reflects off. Rather than fessing up to my ignorance in front of Dan when I spoke to him late that night under a majestic sky full of stars, I did what any self-respecting millennial would do in this situation and Googled it. The UCAR Center for Science Education website confirms what Kayla suspected on its page that's actually explaining why the sky is blue. It says light bounces off of air molecules in the Earth's atmosphere, scattering in all directions. So the atmosphere is made up of nitrogen, oxygen, too much carbon dioxide, and a few other gases. And the light bounces off of those and brightens the sky instead of shooting off into space. And in case you're wondering how that light bouncing action makes the daytime sky appear blue, here's what that page goes on to say next. Blue light is scattered more than other colors because of its shorter, smaller waves. Because blue light is scattered more than other colors of light, the sky appears blue. So there you go. Okay, but why is light pollution a bad thing? Why are dark skies important? Like, what what does it matter if we have a dark sky or not? For the human experience, our ancestors and, and their ancestors, they did so much based on the night sky. You know, humans now, we generally sleep on a cycle, you know, if we're awake during the light and we're asleep during the dark. But if it never really gets dark, your brain doesn't know that it should be releasing all the sleepy time chemicals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's one reason that it's really important to us. Also, you kind of lose your connection to, you know, the wider world if you're not able to see the stars and experience Mm. that. For animals, you know, so many animals rely on nighttime to either hunt like bats, birds will fly, you know, based on the direction of stars and the Mm. sun. And if everything is really bright, everything looks like a sun. Mm. You know, so many animals rely on one, it being really dark and two, being able to see the stars as guidance points. Mm -hmm. 
Do you know, I, I think I learned a little bit about sea turtles too. Like how does the light impact sea turtles? Yeah, so on the beaches, like in Florida, where there are so many sea turtles, there are so many beachfront resorts and condos and they all want to be able to see the beach. So they'll mm -hmm. cast a light onto the beach at night. Mm -hmm. Well, the poor turtles, they will use, especially baby hatchlings, when they come out, they see a bright light and they expect it to be the reflection of the moon on the water. Oh. So that's the bright source that they'll go to uh -huh. because it should be the moon on the on the water. Mm -hmm. But if there's a bunch of bright lights, like from the condos and the hotels that are casting light onto the beach, it'll confuse the turtles and that will be brighter than the moon. So then they will go toward the beach front properties instead and of yards and people walking around and traffic. Exactly. Oh. When I was like eight, I watched a documentary about sea turtles and the little babies coming out. And I am like still traumatized from that because it's horrifying. Like the amount that survived from the nest just to get into the water is already so bad, right? And that's just in a not affected by light pollution sort of a situation. So I feel like I have watched that same. Have you watched that? Because I remember like seeing animals come and scoop up yes. these little babies. Yes. Yeah, I think I, I saw the same one. I have never forgotten that as long as I've lived. I'll probably go to my grave. Like, that's the still rattling turtles. around. Yes. This documentary was the Saving Private Ryan of my childhood. But instead of soldiers trying to get onto a beach, it was baby sea turtles trying to get off of a beach. It was horrific. So of course I looked everywhere to see if I could find this again. And folks, I think I found it. It was from Kratz Creatures on PBS, which I used to watch religiously as a kid. And this whole deathly scene of giant birds gorging themselves on helpless baby sea turtles is set to the jauntiest music you can possibly imagine. It goes like bum 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 like what? I'm gonna link this in the show notes. I appreciate that the Kratz and PBS were trying to keep the show lighthearted for kids, but I don't think it worked because all I remember is how horrifying it was. Anyway, go check that out. Also, while I was looking for this, I got curious about whether or not there are sea turtles here in California. And there totally are. There's even a whole LA Times article about sea turtles hanging around LA, which is amazing. I'll link it in the show notes for all of the wonderful critter-loving Angelinos out there in case you want to learn more. But what I couldn't find was an official source saying that sea turtles nest in California. The ones we get here tend to nest in places like Baja, California, and then come up to visit us a little farther up the coast. I did see a couple of sites claiming that some of them do nest in the state of California, but I couldn't verify it. So the lighting that impacts baby sea turtles on beaches probably isn't as big of a concern here as it is in places like Mexico and Florida and lots more where the turtles are definitely nesting. But one animal we do have in abundance here in California is bats. So bats, they use their echolocation. Uh -huh. So the insects that they eat are drawn to the light. So then the bats oh. have to come to the light, but they end up running into things oh, because no. they're trying to use that echolocation and right so they're just completely thrown off and they and they i mean they're just going to where their prey is right and that's not a safe place for them where in california if you know this where are some of the places with the worst light pollution la la for sure um i'm gonna say pretty much any big city mm -hmm. you know Nowhere in the U.S. except maybe Tucson, Arizona, have they really figured out the light pollution problem. And what did they do in Tucson? 
So in Tucson, they started using warm lights oh. instead of the bright blue tinted LED lights. Mm -hmm. They use them at less wattage. Mm -hmm. They started using more timed lights, right? So if, you know, people are usually concerned about safety in cities, right. like if it's brighter, it's safer. Well, not necessarily. If you have a motion sensor light, if it goes off, then you know that there's some motion out there. Mm -hmm. So they've switched over to that. They've also put covers on their lights to make sure that they're shining at the ground and not at the sky. And the last thing that they, that they did was they moved the lights closer to the ground. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, let's just give Tucson some love for a second. According to the International Dark Sky Association website, between the years of 2016 and 2018, Tucson replaced almost 20,000 light fixtures around the city with 3,000K LED lights and started operating them at 90% capacity from sunset to midnight and then reducing that level down to 60% from midnight to 30 minutes after sunrise. This had incredible results for Tucson, including $2.16 million in annual energy savings, an expected lifetime of the luminaires or light fixtures and lights extended from eight years to 25 years, 63% reduction in total lumens emitted by streetlights, blue light emissions reduced by 34%, and a 7% reduction in total light emissions from the Tucson metro area. So if you're listening to this and you work in like the transportation department of a city or are maybe on a city council, or if you have any kind of influence in this general domain, can you please help us bring back stars? That would make me and a lot of birds and bats and other critters really happy while saving money. Win-win. But one thing I was still wondering about at this point in my conversation was safety. Is it really safe to reduce nighttime light this dramatically? One of my questions was about concerns about safety, right? Because I remember I worked at Target for like a minute when I was, I don't know, 18 or something like that. And I remember one of the things that they went over in like the employee training was like, we have bright lights in our parking lot. It was like a point of pride, right? Like we have bright lights in our parking lot so that people are safe. But like, is that true? No, no, you're definitely not safer when there's more light mm -hmm. because, you know, the bad guys also need the light mm -hmm, to see. Mm -hmm. And it just creates more of a problem than mm -hmm. it's is necessary um there was a study done and i can't remember who did it um it was in the documentary saving the dark but they were talking about that somebody had said that right like it's safer if it's brighter and so they did studies and found out that all of the crimes were happening in these well-lit areas mm. because again the bad guys also need the light to see I went and found this, and what Kayla is referring to here is an astronomer who went to the scene of every crime that was committed in his city for two years. And most of these crimes actually took place during daylight hours, but the ones that happened at night were overwhelmingly committed in well-lit areas. There's a bunch more information on this in the documentary that Kayla just mentioned, Saving the Dark, which is actually available to watch for free on YouTube, and I'll link it in the show notes. Right, that makes sense. It's not like the bad guys have like you know, night vision. And right. And also you're more aware. It's like, let's say that it's a motion sensor light. Mm -hmm. If that light comes on, you're immediately alerted to the, the fact that there is somebody or something around. Mm -hmm. And it might do more to deter somebody, you know, if they were going to commit a crime, that if they're in the dark and the light comes on. Right. Yeah. And, and it's a big, it's like a car alarm going off, right? Like the car alarm doesn't stop someone from starting a car or driving away with it. The car alarm lets everyone know that there's somebody messing with the car. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. What can individuals do to reduce light pollution around their home? 
if people care about this and they're like, yes, dark skies, let's do it. Like what, what can they do? Yeah, that's, that's really simple. Get lower wattage for your outside lights. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be daytime outside. Timed lights or motion sensor lights, warmer colors. So that's easier on the eyes mm -hmm. and keep it covered so that it is just pointing at the ground and mm -hmm. not up at the sky. Kayla said that getting warmer toned lights and avoiding any amount of blue light is super important because blue light brightens the night sky more than any other color. So again, that's lower wattage, point the lights down at the ground, choose fixtures that shield light from going up toward the sky, put lights on a motion sensor or timer, and turn them off when not using them. Okay, but how much wattage is the correct amount? So having lower wattage, like, was it 3000 candlelight power? Okay. Or less. Okay. Or you could just light 3000 candles in your yard. You could do that, but it might make it very warm and a little dangerous. <laughs> Don't do that in California in wildfire season, please, for the love of God. I concede that point. Okay. I, how bad are string lights? Because I really love my string lights in my backyard. Am I being like, am I like killing birds? You're not helping the problem. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm assuming that your string lights are probably like pretty Just looking exposed. light bulbs. Yeah. Yeah. So you're actually lighting up more than just the area that you're sitting uh -huh. in. So you're, you know, while one individual light of strings is probably not that big of a deal, mm -hmm. but you're definitely not helping the problem or you're not solving the problem. You're, you're contributing to that light pollution. Right. That's not what I wanted to hear. All right. This is my last question. It seems silly when we're talking about the night sky, but what about dark skies still just blows your mind or takes your breath away. It's the fact that when I see something from the dark skies, right? Like it's usually some sort of stars or clusters of stars or whatever, how long it took that light to travel mm. from where it is to my eye mm -hmm. is just so unfathomable to me. That is That staggering. I am always in awe. Absolutely. All right, thank you so much, Kayla. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Now we're going to head to a quick break, but stick around because when we get back, we'll spend some time with Dan Dorisco, who's gotten to admire, measure, and photograph a lot of very starry skies on very dark nights. And he shares some fantastic insights with us based on that extensive experience and tells us some of the best places we can visit to experience the night sky away from light pollution. Back with that in just a moment. Okay, story time. When I was a little kid, I had this thing about my socks. And my mom still remembers this. You can see the look of just abject horror in her eyes every time this subject comes up because she would try to put my socks on me and I would have a full meltdown. Like I could not handle the way that they felt on my feet. And I've just always been sensitive about the way fabrics feel on my body. Anything that is too scratchy or has a tag or that isn't snug enough in the right places or is too snug in the wrong places is out. So it can be really hard for me to find clothes that I like. Enter Embody. So I recently got my first Bodhi jumpsuit. It's like wearing water that was woven into fabric by fairies. It's so soft. I'm actually wearing it right now, sitting here recording this. And I've been doing a lot of different activities today, like yoga and work and podcasting. And it has been the perfect outfit for all of those activities. Here's some other things I love about it. One. 
it is 100% made in California. Products are cut and sewn by hand in a woman-owned factory. They also care about sustainability and use mostly plant-based fabrics like eucalyptus and beechwood, and sometimes even reclaimed fabrics that would have gone to waste otherwise. So if you want to get yourself a very cute, very versatile onesie with pockets, head on over to embody.co. That's I-M-B-O-D-H-I dot C-O. And when you check out, use the code GOLDENSTATENATURALIST15 to get $15 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome back to Golden State Naturalist. Our guest in this half is Dan Dorisco. As we get into this conversation, I want you to imagine the setting. An almost perfectly dark night in the desert, the otherworldly silhouettes of Joshua trees on the horizon, a few scattered tents here and there with exhausted campers zipping themselves inside and putting on extra layers before shimmying deep into sleeping bags. And the sky... The sky was so bright with stars that at that moment, it was hard to imagine how they could possibly be subsumed by the glow of a city. When I approached Dan for an interview, it was already late, probably 11 o'clock at night, and only a few other campers were still up. Despite still having to drive home that night, he very kindly agreed, and I started by asking how he got interested in dark skies. Well, I, I was interested in astronomy in, as a kid, and in my family vacations, we would usually go to the desert somewhere, and in those days, you didn't have to go very far yeah. from Los Angeles to see the night sky, and I was always interested in being out at night in nature, you know, mm-hmm. not in this town, mm-hmm. and uh, had a pretty healthy interest in the sciences and physics and astronomy so Mm -hmm. it just sort of stuck with me that's great and then as you spent your career in the national parks right yes i was a started out in uh, fire and fire ecology and then i got a job as a forest ecologist at sequoia Mm -hmm. and king's canyon Uh, but the last part of my career i was able to focus on protecting dark skies that is very cool Utah State University's website has a whole page dedicated to Dan and his work, from childhood trips with his family to his years in the national parks and his shift in focus to protecting dark skies. But one of the things that stands out most to me on the page is where Dan writes about the wilderness as our ancestral home. He emphasizes the importance of connecting with wild places, including skies unaffected by light pollution, for our own mental health and well-being. As I reflect on the truth and importance of Dan's statement, though, I'm troubled by the fact that since over 80% of people in the United States and over 94% of Californians live in urban areas, many of us just aren't regularly getting out to see a lot of stars. Doing so takes time, money, interest, and commitment. And if most people are like me, it's just not happening routinely, if at all. 
There's even an anecdote about a widespread power outage that darkened LA after the Northridge earthquake in 1994. When the city's lights went out, the story goes that people started calling 911 because they were seeing the Milky Way for the first time in their lives and didn't know what it was. While I'm a huge advocate for the idea that we should all look for, appreciate, and protect the nature that's all around us, including in urban areas, it's also true that there are aspects of the natural world that aren't super accessible from cities, like real quiet, large, interconnected expanses of wilderness, and of course, truly dark skies. I tried Googling to see if I could find any organizations that specifically prioritize equitable stargazing opportunities, but either this isn't a thing or I wasn't searching for the right terms because I didn't find anything. So if you know about an organization like this, please let me know so I can share about it on social media and hopefully help get the word out a little bit because everyone should get to connect with the night sky and wild places and our deep roots on this planet by staring in awe at a really starry sky every once in a while. But let's say you do get the chance to go somewhere dark and look at the night sky. What can you expect to see? And so when you look at the dark sky that we have this beautiful example of here, what are kind of some of your favorite things to see? In the sky? Well, you know, the just the contrast between the background and all these stars and the Milky Way. And mm. it's kind of mysterious, you know, mm. it's like it's subtle because it's black and white. You don't really see color at night if it's really dark other than the brightest stars. Mm -hmm. But if you're patient enough and you get dark adapted, you just keep seeing more and more. Mm -hmm. I think that the vastness of outer space and the universe is always much more impressive in a, in a dark sky mm -hmm. where, you know, it just seems limitless. Absolutely. Do you have any favorite constellations or favorite things to look at when you've got your telescope out? Well, I guess um, not so much, but I'm always looking for challenging objects like the farthest away, mm, you know, how, yeah, yeah. how deep into this universe can you see? Mm -hmm. And, you know, but I want to see it with my eyes, not with a camera, so that as I get older, you know, the eyes aren't as good as they used to be, but I had... A lot of great experiences looking at faint quasars and galaxies mm. and clusters of galaxies. And, and then there are, of course, the, the visitors like comets. They're, comets are really great to look at and photograph as well. Because mm. they're always different and they come and they go and they're gone. Ephemeral. Yeah. You have to kind of capture the moment. Right. It's, uh, it's exciting when one comes around. Right. How often do you get to come out and look at a sky like this or something similar uh now that i'm retired not as much as when i got paid for it mm, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but i you know we live in a small town in the owens mm -hmm. valley which is pretty dark so mm -hmm. i just go out on my driveway that's great pretty often and uh of course lights outdoor lights just get worse mm -hmm. it's 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 demoralizing our our local high school but two three years ago all of a sudden decided they needed more lights and they put in like dozens and dozens of these bright blue white leds mm. and the high school is at least a mile and a half two miles from my house but it just created this big glow in the south in the sky uh eastern part of the sky that uh, wasn't there and just yeah. instantly ruined it 
Yeah. And I think that's that's something that people don't really grasp uh, um, the impact that these all night lights have. Of course, they can be shut off at any time, but you know, once they're installed and people get used to them, and mm-hmm. then they go away, they go, well, "What happened to the light?" But right. I want my light back, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a challenge, but it's still pretty dark even in my driveway. And I just have to go a couple of miles north and can get away from it. But we also have a property up in the mountains that's even darker. Nice. What do you suggest? I mean, most people live in a city or somewhere that's super light polluted. So what do you suggest for people who want to see some stars, like great places in California? I don't know if you have any that are in Northern California, you know, a couple throughout the state so that people can get away from major cities wherever they are. Yeah, far northern California, Lava Beds National Monument is... Is that where Lassen is, or is that... It's north of oh, Lassen. Oh, it's north of Lassen. It's okay. in the Modoc country. Okay. And, of course, here in northern Death Valley, well, this isn't really northern, but further north from here in Death Valley is one of the darkest places in California. Mm-hmm used to be the Mojave Desert. You know, it was uh, still pretty good. There's a place called Hole in the Wall Campground. <laughs> in, um, it's like halfway between Las Vegas and Los Angeles. So mm-hmm. it used to be you get out there, it was pretty damn dark. But now it's like, okay, over there's Las Vegas and right. over there's Los Angeles. And you, you're right in the middle of the two. So write down the places Dan is mentioning here because he knows what he's talking about. And then, well, you've still got your pen in hand or your notes app open. Also write down these two resources. One, the International Dark Sky Association website. They've got a list of dark sky places around the world that you can find by just Googling dark sky places. I'll be linking about 100 pages from this organization in today's show notes. So just check there later if you're driving right now. And the other thing to be aware of is that state and national parks or the associations supporting them often host events for stargazing in some really cool locations scattered across the state and the country. For example, the Calaveras Big Trees Association hosted nine events in 2022 for stargazing, ranging from May through October, where they had big telescopes and astronomical binoculars, which I just found out are a thing. So when the weather starts to warm up a little bit, start checking the parks closest to you to see if they have anything like this. You can get some truly amazing dark skies if you're able to travel just a little ways away from the cities. Living in such an urbanized world, though, you're unlikely to escape the light pollution entirely. Right. Even from here, you're pointing out that we could see Las Vegas and Los Angeles, like a a faint glow on the horizon. Look how the air glow is brightening up. It almost looks green to me now. Yeah. Really getting bright. It's It's like teal to me. Like a a, a blue green. Turquoise kind of. Yeah. 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 It's it's definitely brightening up. Because we could see L.A. over there easier before. But Mm -hmm. also the haze will obscure these distant cities. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Vegas still looks pretty bright over there. Yeah. But I, I, I guess on the really clear dark nights, boy, it's hard to find a place where you're, certainly in California, where, where you can't see any glow from mm-hmm. cities. You know, usually there's one out there somewhere. Yeah. You just put the car in front of it or something. <laughs> right, know? right, yeah. yeah. And and I think, too, for most of us, like at my house in my backyard, I look up and I think I can see like four stars, 
five stars. Yeah. And and what do you think that most of us are seeing when we're only able to see four or five stars? What stars are those or what constellation are we looking at? Well, it would depend on the season, but uh -huh. in the winter, of course, there's a lot of bright stars. Mm. There's stars in Orion, uh, Rigel or Regal, as they call it in Germany, mm -hmm. and Betelgeuse, and then uh, Sirius, of course, is the brightest star in the sky. In the summer, the summer triangle is just coming up now. It's oh, yeah. Vega, Deneb, and Altair. So you can pretty much see those just about anywhere. Oh, those are the brightest ones there? Yeah. That enormous triangle? So an isosceles wow, triangle. Wow, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, once we get away from the lights and your Doris eyes get adapted, you can see how bright the, the different towns are in the natural air glow. But that's a great thing about the backcountry of Death Valley. There's so, so much of it. And, um, you know, a lot of it has open camping, so you can just go dry camp somewhere and you won't be around mm. people or anything like that. And you can spread out nicely. But Mesquite Springs Campground's pretty good. You okay. Know, that's, that's a good one because it's way away from anywhere. Mm -hmm. and, and usually it's not that busy. Nice. Know. Is there anything that you kind of just wish that everybody knew about the night sky that you want to share? It's an incredible source of spiritual peacefulness. Mm. If you're just all stressed out with garbage that's going on in your life or in the intermixing with other people or whatever, mm. you can always just get away to under a dark sky and it kind of, it really settles you down, you know. Mm. It's not so much that it puts you to sleep, but it makes you think about other other things that are far more important, you mm -hmm. know, kind of like what's going on in Scorpius today or something, you know, yeah. and, instead of the minutiae of everyday life. And like it keeps things in perspective. Yeah, and also just readjust your frame of reference, you know, the mm -hmm. um, especially today with everybody with glued to their screen or their cell phone, there's a whole world and universe out there mm -hmm. that if you don't experience it firsthand instead of through the filter of the internet or whatever, mm -hmm. you can't make up your mind for yourself mm -hmm. what's important. You're just taking other people's word for it. That's true, yeah. And uh, that's true of any kind of experience, whether it's hiking the Pacific Crest Trail or, or whatever, you know. And it also lends itself to solitary reflection you know not so much a group thing right yeah absolutely i think it's nice for people like me who don't know about the night sky to go with somebody like you though <laughs> point some um, things out yeah. it's pretty nice it's if you want to get into the what's here what's there and right you know then yeah it's nice to have a guide but you can find all this out for yourself too if you have mm -hmm. the time right an opportunity and right. that's the thing about losing the night sky in towns is the opportunity's gone mm -hmm. and people have to travel to do it and that's that's a real tragedy yeah it's a loss and we say oh the gain of all these outdoor lights is far outweighs the loss but i i don't agree mm -hmm. what you know after all of these years of admiring night skies like what about them still just takes your breath away Boy, just the other day, we watched the lunar eclipse. And I don't know how many mm. total lunar eclipses I've seen, probably a dozen. Mm -hmm. But it was just something incredible about it. It was just, the moon was set against this group of stars, like a mm. pentagon. And 
and you could see one of them come out from behind the moon and I just uh, just sitting there for like a half an hour watching the the moon in eclipse it was it was just a great experience mm -hmm. and sure you can take a picture of it it freezes a moment in time but mm -hmm. just the whole process of the eclipse and where our earth is and the moon is and where I am and all this and mm -hmm. blah 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 it's uh it just is very like I said um spiritually peaceful mm -hmm. you know it's mm -hmm. not so much that it's thrilling as it's it's just without it i can't imagine what life would be some people can't imagine what life would be without the internet well, right <laughs> i know what it's like because yeah. i was born long enough ago mm -hmm. it's not that great right? yeah you know i think it's <laughs> It's interesting, you you don't have to cultivate an appreciation of the internet. You know, I think that for things that don't give you necessarily immediate gratification, you have to cultivate a certain amount of patience if you're used to that immediate and the flashing yeah. lights and the brightness. Do you know what I mean? Like those, that's lighting off every reward center in your brain immediately. It's a different kind of reward. Yeah, that's why I brought the push two telescopes instead yeah. of the computerized one uh -huh. because... You know, like I said, anybody can run a computer, but not everybody can navigate the sky just with a star chart. You know, you say, well, so what? You know, I, we got a computer now. We don't have to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's different. It's like that would be like saying I've got a, a machine that's going to help me find this rare plant. And, and I just look at my screen and follow it until I find it instead mm -hmm. of reading the soil and the aspect and the slope and the you know environment and finding it that way yeah yeah absolutely yeah. all right well dan thank you so much for your time oh sure okay. i appreciate it good luck with that uh, yeah it's so dark i can't yeah. see your hand it's, it's, there somewhere. <laughs> it's there somewhere i love this moment despite it containing one of the most difficult handshakes of my life because to me what dan is describing here is having a relationship with the natural world which connects back to his idea about the wilderness being our ancestral home in order to survive all of our ancestors had to intimately know the plants animals waterways and topography of the places around them they use the stars to navigate and to tell stories and to hand down spiritual traditions across generations. And it's my belief that a hundred or so years of living in cities with electric lights can't compete with a couple of hundred thousand years of being human without light pollution, not to mention the millions of years it took for us to become human, during which time our ancestors, when they looked at the night sky, saw a more dazzling array of stars than most of us today can imagine. I wonder if this is where conversations were born, or at least conversations about anything more abstract than which roots or berries were safe to eat. These kinds of dark, starry settings, despite how far away they often are from us today, seem to me intimately tied to the origins of our humanity. And I hope for you that you have an opportunity soon to look up at the same stars our ancestors looked at and feel that sense of spiritual peacefulness. I want to thank so many people for making this episode possible, not least Dan Dorisco, who let me accost him for an interview in the dark when he was about to go home and generously shared his knowledge and wisdom with me. 
And a big thank you to everyone from Friends of the Inyo, particularly Kayla Brown for this episode, but also Wendy Schneider, the executive director of Friends of the Inyo, whom you heard from back in the Conglomerate Mesa episode. Thank you, Wendy, for inviting me out to the desert and for making sure I could come on this trip. And thank you, Kayla, for being able to drive a four-wheel drive vehicle in a way that did not get anyone killed. Also, I want to take this moment to give you an update on Conglomerate Mesa. The mining company threatening the Mesa is pursuing an expanded exploration project that would be 10 times larger than their previous project. There will be a period for public comment likely opening in April or May, so it would be very helpful if you could sign up for Friends of the Inyo's newsletter to get updates on when that will happen and how you can get your voice heard when it does. I know there are a lot of native plant lovers here, so check out the Inyo Rock Daisy as well as the recent plight of Joshua trees if you need a specific reason to help protect this beautiful wild place. I also want to point out that Friends of the Inyo offers educational and volunteer events throughout the year to help the public enjoy and steward the beautiful public lands of the Eastern Sierra. So check out friendsoftheinyo.org events to find out what's coming up and how you can register. Most Friends of the Inyo events are free. Something from my week is that I've been trying to learn the craft of storytelling a little bit more intentionally, and so I started keeping track of all of the story-worthy moments from my days, and 100% of them are either about owls or my kids, which tracks. But the one that's standing out right now is that I was looking at a scholastic book order with my five-year-old the other day, and I handed her a marker and told her to circle the books that she wanted. And then I forgot that I had done this until the next day when I found the paper with almost every single book on it circled. I think she skipped one of them and crossed out another one, which I don't know what that was about. But all of the other books were circled. I'll put this in my Instagram story in case you want to see it. And seeing that she wanted all of those books made my heart just explode into a million tiny pieces. Okay, it's late and I'm so tired and I have to work in the morning, so I'm going to sign off and then poke my head out the door and see what tiny palm full of stars can be seen from here tonight. I'll see you next time on Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song and the Creative Commons license in the show notes.